podcast informs listeners that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed solely belong to the host and not necessarily to their employer or any other group of individuals. It is not a research report. It is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. It is for informational purposes only and should not be construed otherwise. It's been a while since I recorded anything, but I figured with all the stress, reading about where the spy is going to break down to new lows, what's going to happen, is a dollar peso going to hit 60 bucks or 70 or even 80? I know that sounds outlandish, but yeah, I did get some of those questions. I just wanted to share that Look, nobody knows the actual lows. The technicals can point, all right, maybe SPY 3.6. The fundamentals may say, nah, it should probably be 3,000 or 3.2 or 3.1. While others would even say, probably even worse. Whatever really happens, I wanted to share two articles from successful companies and what really matters in case you want to understand what's a proper way to think about things recessions and how do we really invest if we really want to invest in the short term anything could happen so i just wanted to share what paul graham meant about being cockroaches in a corporate world and what Brian Chesky's letter to Joe Gabia about kindness and family and what it means to be successful and what optimists really are in this world. So hope you like the articles I'm just reading point blank and I hope that it helps give you perspective of the current times today. Thank you. Hi, I'm reading a Paul Graham article written on October 2008, a month before they funded Airbnb. In his personal notes, Paul Graham wrote this, Why to start a startup in a bad economy? October 08, the economic situation is apparently so grim that some experts fear we may be in for a stretch as bad as the mid-70s. When Microsoft and Apple were founded, as those examples suggest, a recession may not be such a bad time to start a startup. I'm not claiming it is a particularly good time either. The truth is more boring. The state of the economy doesn't matter much either way. If we've learned one thing from funding so many startups, it's that they succeed or fail based on the qualities of the founders. The economy has some effect, certainly, but as a predictor of success, it's rounding error compared to the founders which means that what matters is who you are, not when you do it. If you are the right sort of person, you will win 
even in a bad economy. And if you're not, a good economy won't save you. Someone who thinks, I better not start a startup now because the economy is so bad, is making the same mistake as the people who thought during the bubble, all I have to do is start a startup and I will be rich. So if you want to improve your chances, you should think far more about who you can recruit as a co-founder than the state of the economy. If you're worried about threats to the survival of your company, don't look for them in the news. Look in the mirror. For any given team of founders, would it not pay to wait till the economy is better before taking the leap? If you're starting a restaurant, maybe, but not if you're working on technology. Technology progresses more or less independently of the stock market. For any given idea, the payoff for acting fast in a bad economy will be higher than waiting. Microsoft's first product was a basic interpreter for the Altair. That was exactly what the world needed in 1975. But if Gates and Allen had waited, decided to wait for a few years, it would have been too late. Of course, the idea you have now won't be the last you have. There are always new ideas. But if you have a specific idea you want to act on, act now. That doesn't mean you can ignore the economy. Both customers and investors will be feeling pinched. It's not necessarily a problem if customers feel pinched. You may even be able to benefit from it by making things that save money. Startups often make things cheaper. So in that respect, they're better positioned to prosper in a recession than in big companies. Investors are more of a problem. Startups generally need to raise some amount of external funding. Investors tend to be less willing to invest in bad times. They shouldn't be. Everyone knows you're supposed to buy when times are bad and sell when times are good. But of course, that makes investing so counterintuitive is that in equity markets, good times are defined as everyone thinking it's time to buy. You have to be a contrarian to be correct. And by definition, only a minority of investors can be. So just as investors in 1999 were tripping over one another trying to buy into lousy startups, investors in 2009 will presumably be reluctant to invest even in good ones. You have to adapt to this. But that's nothing new. Startups always have to adapt to the whims of investors. Ask any founder in any economy if they would describe investors as fickle. And watch the face they make. Last year, you had to be prepared to explain how your startup was viral. Next year, you'll have to explain how it's recession-proof. Those are both good things to be. The mistake investors make is not the criteria they use, but that they always tend to focus on one to the exclusion of the rest. Fortunately, the way to make a startup recession-proof is to do exactly what you should do anyway. Run it as cheaply as possible. For years, I've been telling founders that the surest route to success is to be the cockroaches of the corporate world. The immediate cause of death in a startup is always running out of money. 
So the cheaper your company is to operate, the harder it is to kill. Unfortunately, it has gotten very cheap to run a startup. A recession will, if anything, make it cheaper still. If nuclear winter rally really is here, it may be safer to be a cockroach even than to keep your job. Customers may drop off individually if they can no longer afford you. But you're not going to lose them all at once. Markets don't reduce headcount. What if you quit your job to start a startup that fails and you can't find another? That could be a problem if you work in sales or marketing. In those fields, it can, it can take months to find a new job in a bad economy. But hackers seem to be more liquid. Good hackers can always get some kind of job. It might not be your dream job, but you're not going to starve. Another advantage of bad times is that there's less competition. Technology trains leave the station at regular intervals. If everyone else is cowering in a corner, you may have a whole car to yourself. You're an investor too. As a founder, you're buying stock with work. The reason Larry and Sergey are so rich is not so much that they have done work worth tens of billions of dollars, but that they were the first investors in Google. And like any investor, you should buy when times are bad. Were you nodding in agreement thinking stupid investors a few paragraphs ago? And I was talking about how investors are reluctant to put money into startups in bad markets, even though that is the time they should rationally be most willing to buy. Well, founders aren't much better. When times get bad, hackers go to grad school. And no doubt that will happen this time too. In fact, what makes the preceding paragraph true is that most readers won't believe it at least to the extent of acting on it. So maybe a recession is a good time to start a startup. It's hard to say whether advantages like lack of a competition outweigh disadvantages like reluctant investors. But it doesn't matter much either way. It's the people that matter. And for a given set of people working on a given technology, the time to act is always now. Paul Graham, a timely reminder in this year 2022 when we are again in a recession. Soft or hard, are you going to invest in a recession? A good reminder. It's hard to find a bright spot, so instead, I'm going to read a few things that are hopefully going to give you some ideas of good things. This is a letter shared by Brian Chesky to the Airbnb team about Joe Gebia. I'll just read it point blank. Team, to understand Joe is to understand the soul of Airbnb. Joe is a dreamer who sees potential where others do not. I knew this the moment I met him at the Rhode Island School of Design. The year was 2000, we were among the few kids at the art school who played sports. I ran the hockey team and Joe ran the basketball team. 
we had the hardest marketing challenge in the world. How do you get art students to a sports game? We competed for fans. Our relationship was one of friendly competition back then. We played ping pong against each other almost every day. In 2004, as I was graduating, we were preparing to go our separate ways, but Joe had a different idea in mind. We were sitting in a pizza shop in Providence when Joe took a dramatic pause, looked at me and said, Brian, I think we're going to start a company together and there's going to be a book about it. A book? I was just trying to figure out how to get a job so I didn't have to move back home with my parents. Joe was always dreaming big, and he was one step ahead of me. Because a couple years later, I was working in LA as an industrial designer, and I was miserable. I wanted to become an entrepreneur, but I didn't know how to get started. One day, I received a package with a beautifully designed seat cushion shaped like a buttocks with a handle on it. It was called Crit Buns. Next to this seat cushion was a note from Joe. It said, come to San Francisco. Joe had started a company selling seat cushions and he was a successful entrepreneur. And now he was asking me to come to San Francisco to start a company with him. He spent the next 12 months prodding me to come until finally he figured out a way. It was August 2007, and Joe invited me to his 26th birthday party. We were born a week apart. I accepted his invitation, not realizing that my life was about to change forever. I distinctly remember walking into Ross Street. You had to take your shoes off upon arrival. Along the walls were dozens of post-it notes with ideas written on them. Doors were turned on their side and converted into giant desks. And there was a wall of bookshelves with giant books, design books, color-coordinated. It felt like being at the back at the RISD design studio. Ideas were overflowing, and as soon as it entered, I entered, I felt like I was in a space where something important was going to happen. The next morning, it did. I had fallen asleep on a brown leather couch in Joe's living room, and I woke to discover his roommate a tall person in a crimson jacket and the longest fingers that I'd ever seen tapping away furiously on his laptop. This is how I met Nate. Even though I had no idea at this point the three of us would start a company together. Five weeks later, I finally did move in with Joe before we hosted Kat, Michael, and Amal. Joe hosted me. He not only took me into his home, but he connected me to the startup community in San Francisco. Joe was the OG host. Joe was the, also the one who showed me how to chase a dream. We'd huddle around his deck late into the evening with the only light emanating from the blue glow of his giant cinema display. Inevitably, we would have an idea. It would always start with, what if? One day, Joe said, what if we inflated three airbeds? That's how Airbnb began. But Airbnb didn't get going until Joe brought Nate and me together. By January 2009, Joe, Nate, and I fully dedicated ourselves to Airbnb during Y Combinator. We were part band, part sports team, and we lived together like a family. The three of us would get into Joe's red Jeep Cherokee and drive down to YC in Mountain View every week. Joe had this one Jose Gonzalez CD 
that he kept in his car for probably like 10 years. No matter how good or bad of a day you were having, the same acoustic guitar would be playing. Every Sunday, we would do a comprehensive discussion of everything that was going on, a tradition that we still do every Sunday to this day. Within a few months, Airbnb took off, and we haven't really looked back since. If I was the fuel, then Joe was the launch pad. Since the beginning, Joe has always focused on helping others. Our first community support number was Joe's cell phone. I vividly remember him taking calls while we were standing at an airport terminal gate about to board an airplane. No issue was too small for Joe. He used to say every customer counts, treat them like a family member. He led the mobilization of our community, printing signs for our hosts, and standing outside city halls with them in solidarity. And he always had a big idea to help people, like in 2013 when Hurricane Sandy flooded New York City. Joe huddled with a small team in a tiny glass conference room for days on end, working to provide housing for people that were stranded. That's how Airbnb.org was born. The reason I tell you these stories is because there are a few things you need to know about Joe. I remember someone once told me, pessimists are usually right, but it's the optimists who change the world. Joe is the quintessential optimist, but it's not rooted in blind faith. His optimism is rooted in his greatest superpower, his relentless imagination. One day I asked Joe, what would success for Airbnb be? You know what he said? It wasn't to become the biggest company in the world. It was to expand the definition of the word family. He said that if we were successful, we would open the dictionary one day, and in that dictionary, the word family would not be limited to your parents, siblings, or children, but also include all the people you took into your home, the people you cared for, travelers that you were interested with. Joe's got the heart to redefine the word family and the imagination to believe that it is possible. That is why Joe is the uncompromising true north of Airbnb. With Joe, there is always a way, and that way always travels through kindness. Reflecting back on it now, I just cannot believe how lucky I am. If anything had gone just a few degrees in a different direction, I would not be writing this letter. That is how fragile ideas are. And it is what gives me gratitude to know Joe and Nate. What I am most thankful for is that we are still together, still meeting every Sunday. We built the dream together, and now, after all of these years, we still continue to dream. Thank you, Joe. Brian.